Christ alone means what we just sang there in that song. Our eyes are on Him. Our eyes are on Him. Uh, my job, my role is to point our eyes to Him. Because only in seeing Him that we can actually claim it is well with my soul. Because He is the one who resurrected from the dead. He is the one who defeated sin and death at the cross. And by looking at Him week after week in our life, then we can say, it can be well in my soul. As we look to Him this morning again, coming to His Word. How many of you had someone when you were young who you looked to? We're talking about looking to Christ. But how about in your life when you were young? Or maybe now somebody that you looked to when you were young. A hero, maybe. Or a, a role model. Or someone you imitated or patterned your life after a copy. How many of my show of hands? How many of you had somebody? Somebody like that in your life. Maybe you didn't actually know them personally. For me growing up, I didn't know him personally. It was Larry Bird. Uh, if I could just shoot a ball like Larry Bird, life would have been really good, right? Or another one for me was, um, if I could have written a song like Paul Simon, man, I, I would have been great for me. You get a little taste of my, my interests, my tastes, my likes in there. I guess our heroes, even as I mention those to you, makes me think our heroes really, in some ways, mirror what was most important to us at that time in life, maybe. Or what's most important to our hearts at any given season of life. You can see mine right there. Sports and music. <laughs> that was my life. But we can't deny, as we talk about looking to Christ as a hero, or looking to others and along the way in our journey of life, whoever you've looked to, we can't deny those influences, uh, that those people, whoever they are, they have a real influence over us, don't they? And they can. The example maybe children see in their parents as they look at their parents. Who we see, what we see in Christ when we see, my eyes are on you. The influence of a great boss on an employee or a great mentor in our life. The influence that heroes, models have in our life is real. It's real. But that influence can, can be negative and destructive as well. Here's a couple verses. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Or how about Proverbs? It was written this, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Why? Lest you learn his ways and entangle your yourself in a snare. You and I, we have a tendency to become like those we choose to surround ourselves with. Or those we look to for guidance, for meaning, for purpose in life. How many of you grew up hearing this phrase? Everyone knows you can't choose your family, but you can choose what? Your friends. Maybe you grew up hearing that, and some of you are like, can't we flip that? No, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. Some of you got that. Yeah, it's important as we think about that. Meaning, what does that mean? Who we choose to be around, whether it's wise or good influences, matter where you can. Or in the, in the vice versa, a negative influence. If who we follow has that much influence on us, who our heroes are from the time we're children to when we grow up, it's important. They mold us. They shape us. They influence us. I want our youth who are still here, our kids here today, to hear this from somebody other than their parents today. From their pastor, from the Word of God who you surround yourself with matters in life. 
We should make sure that those that surround us are following the right pattern, following the truth, you might say, the right people or the right path, especially in the life of God's church or in your life as a disciple. In our passage today, we have two models laid out, two heroes or maybe one hero and anti-hero, two roads we're going to call them today. Two roads are going to be laid out in front of us today. And Paul's going to describe these roads in a setting, in a day that sounds a lot like our own day. He describes the love of self that was taking place at that time. In the church, in the world, even maybe seeing as a virtue at that time, the love of self is primary. And he's going to show us the destructive nature of that road, that model, that we're not to follow as lovers of God first and foremost. And we actually love others best when we follow the other example, the other road. Paul's example. Paul's road of godly living, of teaching and living and service in the midst of a self-loving culture. Today we're going to see these two diverging roads in the same church Paul's talking about. Two roads that can even happen inside the same church walls. And the obvious one we're gonna fo- we are to follow. So grab your outline if you got it. Hopefully you got your Bible open to 2 Timothy as well as we head deeper in to take a look at these two roads. Paul gets very clear here. Very clear. He says, avoid these people. That's clear. That's heavy statement. Avoid these people, he says. Take the other road. And you might hear that and you say, okay. I thought though... In the church, we are to reach out to the world, share the truth. I mean, think of our passage from last week. Paul even said to Timothy, be gentle with your opponents. Be gentle with those that disagree with you. Timothy's going to have to come into contact to have a disagreement with people who disagree with him, right? Yes, we are. We have to. We're supposed to. We should desire to reach out. But Paul in this passage is shockingly enough describing people in the church today. He's saying right in the church. That's where he's talking about avoidance and taking a different road. That list of sins there that he catalogs for us, as we read, you're like, is it ever going to end? That list I read, he was describing people in the church. People who call themselves followers of Christ. He's given warnings like that before. Look at 1 Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he went on to say something similar. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to do what? Go out of the world. You need to vanish, disappear. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So in the church, if he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's what Paul's talking about here today. That's what's taking place here today. He's saying, look for those inside the church who are destroying the lives of those inside the church And recognize it. Those who call themselves a Christian but lead lives into destruction, into devastation, in their wake, they churn out ruined lives in the church. He says, avoid them. Avoid them. So it's an in-house kind of message. It's an in-house reference. It's a really extremely practical passage today. It's going to raise these kind of questions. Are you following the godly path? Or are you following an ungodly path? Who are you modeling your life after? Are you aware of the influencers in your life? It's really extremely practical 
as well as he calls us to be observant, to, to understand that stormy times will come and we must weather the storm. Take a look at verse 1 there. He said, chapter 3, verse 1, But understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. There will come times of difficulty. My dad was in town last week, and he, uh, he had driven actually the entire way up from California um, up to o- Oregon along the coast. He came 101 and PCH along the ways, and it took obviously a lot longer, but it's worth it. If you've ever done the Oregon coast or down into northern California, it's worth it, isn't it? One of the things he said, though, as he was coming along, he remarked how the further north he got, the wilder the ocean got. And the wilder the waves were crashing on the shore. We had some storms at that time, too, but he just I couldn't, we were watching, watching the whole way. The wilder the waves got crashing on the shore, the further he got north in California and then into Oregon. Times of difficulty, Paul says in this first verse here. Storms, waves crashing, however you want to describe it. He says, Understand this, Timothy. They will come. They will come. It's unavoidable. Paul's saying, in the church, it's unavoidable. Difficulty will come. Opposition will come. Like those waves and sets of waves that come crashing on the shore. So he says to Timothy, understand this. He's really saying, don't be surprised. Church life is hard. Church life is hard. We look at the letters of the Bible and Paul's words to those churches. Church life is hard. Especially, he says, in these last days. In these last days, he says. And you hear that, you might be tempted to think, well, what, what does he mean by that, last days? Is he, is he talking just about the future? Uh, the future last days, maybe when Christ returns? When he, when he, when, at the very, very, very end of the last days. That's actually not what Paul is saying. When Paul says the last days, he's not referring to the future when the last days are ushered in. He's referring to the present. The last days are the time from when, when Jesus came to when he comes back. We are in the last days. Paul said in Acts, he said, in these last days when he preached even his first sermons. We are in these last days. We're in these last days. So we shouldn't be surprised then. It's not a to-come time, a future time. It can be a now time when storms come, which means those seasons will also come and go in the life of all the church. Those seasons of opposition, those trials. It also means that not every time in church history or in the life of Bethany Church or in the life of every other church is as Uh, uniformly evil, you might say, or continuously getting worse. Not always. By the grace of God, there there is an ebb and flow in our lives. But there will be those seasons, Paul is saying. They will come. Like stormy waves that hit a shoreline. Come crashing down upon us. So let's look at those two roads then. Because there was storm was coming in Timothy's time that Paul addressed. They come as well in our life. The opportunity to follow these two roads is there before us every day and even every moment. So let's explore them. Their ultimate outcome and Paul's advice. And here's our first road. Avoiding the road, the ungodly walk. He calls Timothy and, and, and us as Christians to avoid the road, the path, the journey, you might say, the decisions, the model, the ungodly walk. 
You know, verses 1 through 9, as I read that, you probably heard um, the graphic description of, of, of who Paul is describing as ungodly people. What's interesting is he says, uh, the storms will come, difficulty will come. Why? Look at verse 2 right at the beginning there. People. <laughs> For people. That's it. He says, people. What's causing the storms in the church? For Timothy and Ephesus, people, right? People like you and I. People and their sin, he was saying. People, us, you, I, we, people, Paul is saying, are causing these storms in the church. It's a list that characterizes the false teachers in the church, whatever was going on at that time, and humanity in general. And rather than go through the entire list this morning, because that's a lot of words, isn't it? It's a lot of different descriptive words in there. We're not going to go through the entire list. Instead of that, I want us to see just a few things, a few characteristics about that road, about sin, what it is, and about the destruction that it's causing. First one is this. The road the ungodly travel, we see in that passage, is a self-seeking road. It's a self-seeking road. Which is truly, actually, the definition just of sin. It's self-seeking. Sin is a love of self first. That's what it is. Sin is, a, you might call it, put it another way, sin is a misdirected or a disordered love in your heart. Disorder, placing things out of order. A lot of us like to have things in order, don't we? You're maybe a type A, kind of like you got like a list. You know how it's supposed to look on that shelf or in your garage or whatever it might be, or your kid's room. You know how you want it to look, right? But it doesn't always look that way, does it? Disordered loves or misdirected loves in our heart. That's what sin is. That's what Paul is describing here. Just glance even down at the verses. He bookends it with those ideas. The bookend, front and back. He says, verse 2, people will be lovers of self. In these last days. There it is. Lovers of self. Or he goes on to say lovers of money is another one. Or, or, or look down at verse 3. The opposite. Not loving good. Not loving good. Or verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He bookends the entire thing with this love of self and other things other than God. And here's what that list really boils down to. Take a look. Really, three sins in there. Narcissism, right? Love of self. I, me, mine was the Beatles song, I think. Uh, Narcissism, a love of self. I, me, mine. Materialism, a love of money. uh, He's got in there. And then hedonism, the final one, a love of pleasure. That's really, this list can be boiled down to those three things. Narcissism, materialism, hedonism. Love of other things. And some of them even good things, right? Just disorder. Out of order. Out of whack, you might say. And what's happened in these men's lives is that, as they're being described, or maybe it's even us, is that they've replaced the love of God in their heart with some other Thing, something else they've jumbled up the order of good things even in life and place something else at the center this is something absolutely fundamental to understanding the problem even of humanity or my problem my sin we were created to be worshipers. 
We're made in God's image. You remember that from Genesis? Every person has been created in God's image. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. But what that means is that every single human being has been created to be a worshiper of something. It's just the way being made in God's image wires humanity. Our hearts are bent on worshiping something. Something. So here's what that means. Every single person in the world is a worshiper of something or someone. Whether it's God, described as some other religion, or any one of these other things. It can be anything. But the por- important point is that every single person is a worshiper. Not just, not just those that go to church on Sunday morning. Everyone worships something. Or you might say, loves something supremely. And so sin, then, is a disordered love. It's a disorganization of love. It's never just an action. We see that in our kids, right? They, they act out. They do an action. They hit each other or they do something or, or somebody speaks a harsh word to you. It's an action. Right? It's never just an action. It's a disordered love. That's what we're getting at here. That's what that list is all about. That's what Paul's getting at here. And it's the cause of all the unhappiness in your life. That's how big this is. It's the cause of all the unhappiness in my life. All of our relationship breakdowns. Disordered loves. Disobedience to parents he even mentions in that list. Did you hear that? He mentions that there. Abuse he mentions there. Tearing down others. Because love of self or something else is supreme rather than God. That's what this list is saying. We all worship something. And when it gets out of whack, life falls apart. And Paul's saying to the church, uh, it can fall apart in the church when our loves get out of order. All kinds of good things we can love. All kinds of good things that we can love in the church that can become ultimate things above Christ and God. We're talking history today, so we go back a little bit today. Actually, much further than the Reformation. Back to the year 300. There's a man named Augustine. You probably heard St. Augustine. Or, um, he, was a, he was a pastor, really. He was a pastor in the 300s in, in northern Africa. And he shaped Christianity with this idea more than anybody uh, outside of the Bible. This idea of disordered loves. This larger quote I want to read, it's from a, a Tim Keller book, but the words in quote are words from Augustine. It's long, it's a couple slides, but it's worth it. Hang in there for this quote. It describes what this list is really about, Okay. The functional cause of our discontent or your unhappiness is that our loves are out of order. Augustine taught that we are most fundamentally shaped not as much by what we believe or think or even do, but by what we love. By what you love. Here's Augustine. When we ask whether somebody's a good person, we're not asking what he believes or hopes for, but what he loves. What he loves. For Augustine, what we call human virtues then are nothing more than forms of love. Courage then is loving your neighbor's well-being more than your own safety. In short, what you love most at the moment is what controls your actions at the moment. Let me say that again. That's not important. In short, what you love most at the moment now is what controls your actions at that moment. Here goes Augustine again. A body by its weight tends to move towards its proper place. My weight is my love. Whatever I'm carried, wherever I'm carried, my love is carrying me. You are what you love. You thought it was you are what you eat, right? <laughs> you are 
what you love. That's really what this is saying. You are what you love. Write that down. I mean, that phrase, you are what you love. That is the gist of this list. You are what you love. Sin in any given moment is a love of something else or ourself greater than God right in that moment. That's a deeper understanding of it than just an action. That's what that list says. All those loves it says. Love, love. Sin is a love of self, really. Here's what it does. It isolates us from God because of that. It isolates us from each other, doesn't it? When self is loved most. That's why it's so destructive. That's why Paul's pointing it out. And you know what? It's the default mode of my heart. Except for the grace of God. This is the default mode of our heart. But for the grace of God. The love of, of self. And the destruction it causes. A commentary I was reading this week had a great mental picture of what the selfish sinner looks like. Here's the first image. Oh, that's kind of cute. That doesn't look like a sinner. <laughs> it's a cute hedgehog, right? All that nice, see the fuzzy kind of warm fur, uh, warm wool, whatever you want to call it there on, on his belly. Really sweet, really cute. You kind of want to just go up and like go, coochie, coochie, coo, right? Like kind of just go up and, and, and pet it. It's really cute. But what, what does a hedgehog look like when it gets into defense mode? Let's take a look at that. Yeah, not so cute, huh? Not so cute there. And the commentary I read said this. The selfish man's like the hedgehog, which rolling itself up into a ball gives only sharp spears to everyone while hoarding his soft and warm wool. That was the picture that kind of struck me. Oh, yeah. That was the picture. It's no wonder we can hurt each other so horribly by our selfish love, our disordered love. So the question then is, what do you love? Or a deeper question, what are you loving in those moments when you feel like you just can't control your anger? Or what are you loving in those moments when you just feel ashamed that maybe you shouldn't even be on your shoulders? What are you loving in those moments? The disordered loves. And what is the only thing that can put your loves in the right order and put God at the center so that we can open up a bit and not only always put out those sharp spears, it's Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's it. That's it. The love, the security, the forgiveness that's found there. The only thing that puts God at the center. That's it. Rules and laws are not enough. Just putting a list out there like Paul does, not enough. Like a list and don't be that. Or if I say today, just don't follow that road, follow the other one. That's not enough. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ takes you from a lover of self to a lover of God, which makes you into a lover of others. That's it. When you see his beauty, when you see who he is, beautiful one, right? I love, I adore. That's it, right? Rules and laws can't make a selfish heart turn outwards. Or it's Ebbius Fool, she's like yelling at that hedgehog there, open up, <laughs> open up, open up. They wouldn't do it. Only the grace of God can open you up. Only the grace of God. Basking in it. Uh, I forget what the words were we saying, but an a- oh, avalanche of grace. Well, it's a self-seeking road. It's also an empty road we don't want to follow. Take a look at verse 5. The second characteristic, it's an empty road. He says, these men, these uh, evil men even, he says, they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 
Avoid such people. Paul says, maybe on the surface, these that he's speaking of even look great. Very religious maybe even. Very religious. The form, he says, though. They may have the appearance of godliness. Keeping all the rules. But inside, he says, they have no power of Jesus. They have no power of the Gospel. They don't believe the Gospel. They're on some other road, some other way, some other way to gain favor with God. It was all show, Paul is saying. It was all external. The form, but no substance. No heart. No real Gospel. No real Jesus. It was all show. All on the outside, but inside rotten maybe it's like so maybe it's like a reverse hedgehog really all warm and fuzzy on the outside but a heart of spears a heart of sharp daggers so paul says watch out watch out he says avoid these people in the church be aware be acknowledge they attended the gathering they lived in the life of the church they were there but they denied the work of jesus they needed Jesus. I love this quote by uh, a commentator, Pastor Tony Mariti. He sums this up, these people, this emptiness of, the, of that religion, of what they were doing. By failing to embrace Christ, they failed to embrace the power. Apart from the gospel, people are just practicing dead religion. No Christ, no power. People can go to church their whole life, he goes on and say. They can have their church in the office. What's that mean? They can be a pastor. Even move their bedroom into the church. But if they do not have Christ, they do not possess spiritual life. Christ alone, there it is. Christ alone. It's a big question. But are you somewhere in there? Maybe you've been attending here your whole life. It's possible. Or most of it, or 10 years. Or maybe you're new to our church and maybe you're just realizing it for the first time. I don't have Christ. I don't have them. Hear this warning this morning. Attending church, whether it's here or anywhere else, doesn't save you. Your involvement in ministry life doesn't save you. Your record as a good mom or dad doesn't save you. Your good deeds alone don't save you. Your good deeds can't. If the Reformation taught us anything, it's that Christ alone and faith alone saves you. That's what brings us into a right relationship with God. And that's actually the good news, right? Because my record, our record, I probably look a little more like a hedgehog <laughs> at times. Do you? I know, we do. Christ alone. So here's, here's, the, here's the imploring. Jump off that road today. Don't live on that road of, of self-works, of self-righteousness, of trying just to be better just for the sake of pleasing God. Go to Christ. And be seen in God's eyes as all good because of Jesus. Have your sins paid for because of that road, the road of the gospel, the road of grace and mercy. Well, the self-seeking road, it's an empty road because there's no Christ on it. It's a dead-end road. It's a dead-end road. That list, that way of following, that life they were living, that big list in verses 1 through 9, it's a dead-end road. Remember the verse, bad company corrupts morals. Here's the thing. You can be converted both ways. You can be converted to this road. You can be converted to that road. You can be converted to the gospel road. You can be converted. Because not everybody, uh, here's 
that what I'm kind of getting at is not only is everyone a worshiper of something or someone, of any type of thing, not only is everyone a worshiper, but everyone's also been converted to something. Everyone's also been converted to something in their life. Something in your life is you've bought into, you've been converted to. So when they tell Christians, why are you always trying to convert us? Everybody's been converted to something, and guess what? Everybody's trying to convert everybody else to their view. That's just the nature of being human. It's the nature of living in this world. It's all trying to convert us. What, their view of the good life, or their view of what you need to be happy, to capture your loves. Everyone's been converted to something. Well, these men in the church, they were doing just that. Trying to convert, trying to convert... Uh, and in Paul's passage, these women to something else, some other gospel, no gospel at all. And they were preying on what Paul calls here, he called them weak women, or it means idle women, trying to convert them to their road or their version of Christianity. Now, you hear this passage, we always read the Scripture through our lens. It's hard not to. Our own lens, our own culture, our own history, and you might hear that, say, Paul? Weak women? Like, how dare he? And you think, what? You know? We read the scripture through our lens. And yet he was just saying, evil men, evil men, evil men, right? You might hear that and say, is he just saying women are weak? You might, that might have been your first instinct when I read this morning. Is he just saying all women are weak? That's not what Paul's doing here. Let's take a look, actually. Because I want us to get to actually what he's saying and avoid reading it through our cultural lens, which we can do. Look at verse 6. For among them are those, those, these men, these false teachers, they creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they'll not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as was to those two uh, men." These were a group of women in the church. When Paul says these weak women or these idle women, he's not saying all women. He's saying there was a group of women in this church who were immature, childish, probably burdened with their sin, the verse says. And because of that, they were open to trying anything. Anything other than even the gospel. Open to hearing anything. And that's exactly what these men did. Rather than bring them the clean, refreshing freedom of the gospel. As teachers in the church, they brought opposition to the truth, Paul says. Just like those two men, Janus and Jambres, they were probably the uh, magicians that challenged Moses in front of Pharaoh. Remember that story? They challenged God's uh, leader, God's authority through Moses. There were men in the church that were doing this. They were preying on these women. Preying on them going after them, seeking to convert them to something other than the truth. They're opposing the truth. I don't know if you've been following the news this past few weeks, but Hollywood has blown up with a scandal. Blown up with a scandal. One of the most powerful movie producers of our era. A leader, you would say. You, a pastor in that industry, you would call him. Harvey Weinstein intoxicated by his self-love, his power. He has 
tragically abused and sexually abused women for decades. And it's been known about, and it's been covered up, and it's been glossed over, and it's finally coming to light. It's horrific. And it's wrong for a leader or any man, whether it's in Hollywood and the organization there, or in the organization of the church, or in the organization of the family, it's wrong and horrific for a leader or any man in his own self-love, intoxicating power or authority to ever abuse a woman, or anyone for that matter, verbally or sexually or physically or spiritually as we see here in the church, which is what they were doing. And I pray to God as they did in Paul's day, if things rise up like that in our day, may our church realize that verse 9 says whether it's abuse or false teaching or rampant sin, may they not get very far because it's destructive and it's hurtful and it's harmful. And the hope and truth of the gospel would prevail and deliver. It needs to be outed. It needs to be dealt with like Hollywood is doing. Praise God for that. I pray that women in the future maybe uh, happen much less. Maybe never, I pray. Paul says, avoid this. It's this dangerous. This can happen in the church. A misguiding, a misleading, and objecting the truth. He says, address it. Don't follow that road. So what was Timothy to do? What are we to do? Following the road the godly walk. We'll close with that. Following the road the godly walk. Godly examples. And Paul holds himself up as one model, one hero to follow, but only as he says in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I am of Christ. Imitate me as I am of Christ. He says in verse 10, You, however, followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He says, you, Timothy, though. You, however. It's imperative, Timothy. You, however. The temptation's going to be there to love self overall. You, however, Remember my past, he says. Remember my history. Remember Paul's past. And what do we see of that road? First one's this. It's a selfless road that Paul describes. So over and above and against a selfish road or a self-serving road, Paul was able to live a road that looked much different. It was selfless. Selfless road. Well, if the false teachers and evil men in the church were selfish, self-serving, Paul was selfless. The heart of a God-centered heart Uh, and love his conduct, he says, follow. That heart. My aim, he says. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Four virtues, you might call them, or fruits. Here they are, over and above and against the other loves. Let's go that one and then one more. There it is. Faith, patience, love, and steadfastness. As we take that list from the evil path, those stand up over and above as Paul's path. Paul's road, and they're to be ours too. Not just as leaders, but as followers of Christ, over and above the love of self. It's the only way those things can come. And it was only because Paul had been turned inside out, inside out like that hedgehog, inside out by the gospel. He wasn't show without power. He was virtuous by Christ in him. That's what had happened. That's what had happened. There's a verse I love. We heard it in our parenting uh, seminar this weekend that we had. We had a great time there just hearing about 
what's one area that's really hard to be selfless in? I heard one laugh. One person here knows. Parenting, yeah. Parenting, it's hard, isn't it? And, and our teacher in that seminar read this verse. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So you look at that list. Which of you are, which of these um, top four then are, are you struggling with? Do me a favor. Write it down and cover it so the person next to you can't see. Just write it down. Take a little risk. Just write down which one of those, take a minute, is hardest for you. Faith, patience, love, steadfastness. Go ahead. The question to ask for you then is, what love is getting in the way? What love is getting in the way? And what's the solution? It's love for Jesus. It's, it sounds really trite and simple, but it's the core of what we're saying here. What Paul is saying, love for Jesus. That has to be put, or that has to be put to the center of your life to put all other loves in your life in their proper place. They're good things, even. Ourself, taking care of ourself, that's good. Money is a good thing in its proper place. Pleasure is a good thing in its proper place, Right? When we treasure Christ first, that's what happens. The Spirit produces these things from the inside out. They're fruits of the Spirit, and we're going to need them. Why is that? Because the selfless road is also the painful road. It is a painful road, Paul says. It's not easy. It's hard. Paul says, remember the, the fruit of the Spirit in me. But how it also showed up, Timothy, as I suffered, as I was persecuted for the gospel, and as I am in prison now, do you remember he's writing from prison to Timothy? This love, this peace, this steadfastness is showing up. Or as he says in this passage, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that doesn't mean we will all end up in jail for our faith. (laughs) Thank God for that, like Paul is. Maybe for you, the persecution is the loneliness you will feel as the only Christian with your family this holiday season. Maybe that'll be it for you. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and you're not really surrounded by any other followers of Christ. Maybe that's your persecution. Maybe it's persecution for you. Maybe at work you refuse to cut corners because you love neighbor better than self. Maybe that's your persecution. Maybe you will stand for uh, Christ or faith in a public setting. Maybe it's a student on your campus. Maybe somebody's going to ask you that tough question. Why does your church believe that? Why do Christians still believe that? Why do you hold to that? Maybe it'll be that for you as a student. It might be. More than likely for you, you live more in that world than maybe even your parents. We're not called to seek the suffering, to be masochistic, to seek it out, but to seek to love God first. If you do, it will come. That's what Paul's saying. If you do, it will come. Jesus told his disciples that too, didn't he? You follow the path. If they hated the master, they're going to hate the servants, aren't they? But here's some comfort for us. It's the final one. It's a well-traveled road. It is a well-traveled road. That's that road of suffering for the godly. It's a well-traveled road. You are not alone. We're highlighting the Reformation today. Did you know that many of the Reformers died? They died for things that you and I 
take for granted today. They were killed. They faced the ultimate suffering. Things that we take for granted. The Bible you have in your lap or on your smartphone, you owe today to a man named William Tyndale. Who's ever heard of him? Anybody ever heard of him? Tyndale, you've probably heard of him. I got a little picture popping up here for us. I want you to hear the story of Tyndale. As we talk about stories and history and the Reformation, the story of Tyndale, a British man, a British pastor. It's from a magazine called World Magazine. I just want to read a couple little paragraphs. I want you to hear this story. While Luther worked on translating the Bible into German, Tyndale sought uh, permission from the Bishop of London to translate the New Testament into English. The Bible wasn't in the people's language. You couldn't read your own Bible. He wanted to translate it into our language, English. The bishop denied his request. Such translations were illegal at that time. The priest and Oxford-trained scholar who spoke seven languages and was well-versed in Hebrew and Greek, he traveled to Germany. There, Tyndale, he published in 1526 his New Testament, the first English translation taken directly from the Greek and Hebrew. And then smugglers promptly carried copies back to England where church authorities began buying them up to keep them out of circulation. Fueling, in effect, Tyndale's ongoing work. Undeterred by threats against him, the English reformer began translation work on the Old Testament as well, as the backlash from authorities and, and public burnings of his New Testament increased. Public burnings. Tyndale only added to his troubles when he wrote of a pamphlet in 1530 opposing King Henry VIII's planned annulment from Catherine of Aragon to Mary Anne Boleyn. Tyndale continued his Bible translation work there and with his merchant friend's help began smuggling Bibles back to England in quantity, hiding them in bales of cotton or barrels of food. The Reformation well underway, Tyndale spent time not only at his books but also serving English refugees, plus the poor living on Antwerp streets. He said, My part be not in Christ if my heart be not to follow and live according as I teach. He dined often in merchant homes too, which led eventually to his undoing. Henry Phillips became a frequent guest at those dinners, an English ne'er-do-well Tyndale took into his confidence. In May 1535, Phillips led Tyndale out of his house, out of his safe house, to a waiting band of soldiers who took him into custody. They delivered him into Vilvord Castle, the state prison for the Low Countries, where he was jailed on charges of heresy. A letter to the governor of that time in the winter of 1535 the only known writing in his hand we have said, I suffer extremely from cold in the head. He wrote asking for a cap, a coat, and a patch to cover his legs. But above all, he said, kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary. And I might spend time with study. Tyndale pursued his translation work until his trial in 1536. He was found guilty of heresy, was hauled to the stake outside Vildor Castle. You see a, a picture behind me representation executioners bound him with an iron chain and rope around his neck they strangled him before lighting a torch and setting fire to the wood that burned his body his dying prayer according to historian john fox was lord open the king of england's eyes it eventually came to pass by 1539 church authorities placed copies of Tyndale's bible in every church in england as Reformation zeal took hold. It is a well-traveled road. But it also means this. We don't travel alone. You don't travel alone. We've got the stories of Paul, 
the stories of those in church history. We've got the Reformation, those who've gone before us like Tyndale. And 2,000 years ago, a man who stood in the face of persecution, not tied to a stake, but nailed to a cross, said these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He walked the road for you. That's it. He walked the road of the cross for you so that those that nailed him on that day even could be forgiven. Those who sit here, you, wanting to love God more than other things, wanting to have the love of God be the driving force in your life, that's what that was for. He walked that road of suffering for you. Those who face persecution and trials that will come, he, he, he walked that road too so that we could sing songs like the great hymn from the Reformation. And though this world with devils fills, written by Martin Luther, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. That's what that meant. That's what that means for your life. Change is possible. Standing up in the face of persecution is possible because he went to the cross and took it for you. That's it. We're going to close with singing that hymn today. We maybe haven't sung it in a while. <laughs> we need your help, okay? A mighty fortress is our God is the hymn. It was the battle cry of the Reformation. Those words are in there. We're going to sing those words. Janine has graciously offered to play it for us. They're going to come up and sing it with her. Um, we're going to close with that today as we think Reformation, as we think history, but more importantly, as we think the gospel of Jesus Christ today and the one who died on the cross for us. Would you stand? We're going to close with that, and I'll come back for a benediction.